The primary reason is instead of accepting monikers of of identity, I am this ism or that ism or this ick or that ick. Um, I think it's I think it's important to recognize that we're all dependent on something. We all have needs. We all have dependencies. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, a place for gathering wise conversations on living well, how to live well along the journey with Jesus. My name is Casey. I'm an author and pastor, and I'm your host, as always. I'm coming to you from the basement of the Tigret house. Uh, it's the most sound dampened room in the house. And so uh, that's where we do this. Uh, we're back to school. I hope you're enjoying the end of summer. We're back to school here at the Tigret house. And so our rhythm is back to somewhat normal, but uh, I'm happy to bring you today's episode and the conversation we have today. Uh, my guest is a guy named Seth Haynes. Seth, along with uh, Liz Diddy, who was in an episode a couple of weeks ago, uh, a little while back, actually, it's been more than a couple of weeks. Uh, I met Seth at the same place at the Festival of Faith and Writing in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I had a good conversation with him. Uh, Seth is a lawyer by training, uh, has been in, in ministry briefly, as he'll talk about, but his story is bigger than that. His story is part of a book uh, that came out in 2015 called Coming Clean, and in it, he deals with his uh, 90-day journey into sobriety from alcohol addiction. And he talks about sobriety in a way that I've never heard anyone else talk about it. It's it's really, really powerful, really, really fascinating. So uh, I hope that you'll listen to this episode uh, if you are struggling with some kind of addiction. Uh, and you might be and don't know it. That will be something that comes out. Also, uh, if you know someone who is going through uh, dealing with an addiction of some kind, uh, and needs to pursue sobriety, this might be a good episode, a good conversation for you to share with them. So without further ado, I give you my friend, Seth Davis. Seth, you join us today from the great city of Fayetteville, Arkansas. You may be the first guest I've ever had from Arkansas. Well, that's a shame. And also, Does, uh, I'm your blessing in that way. Ah, oh, that's not true. Actually, actually, and she would be so mad at me if I didn't say this, Jerusalem Greer was on. Oh, she's she, great. Yeah, and so she was from Arkansas, too. And we had to get into whether or not her name was some sort of traditional Southern name. Mm. But, you know, obviously, you, your parents went the more conservative route with Seth. Yeah, that's that's very true. She's also in a different part of the state. So uh, in Northwest Arkansas, the Fayetteville area, we're, we're kind of our own uh, little country, our little enclave up here. So, um, you know, she she might say that I'm from a different state. She, she might say you're from a part of the state that feels like you're better than everybody else. She, she might, she <laughs> might say that. She might say that. Oh man. Well, it's good to have you on. This is also, you know, you're the, you are the first person with a law degree that I've ever had on the program. So I, I don't, I have to tell you, I feel a little like I need to get all my stuff in a row. Uh, what, how do, how did that all come about? How did you end up getting a law degree and deciding to, to do that? And that is a messed up uh, story, and it goes something like this. I was an undergrad econ major, 
Um, and the reason I was an econ major is because my dad told me that I couldn't um, major in ministry, that that wasn't practical enough. So I needed to pick something practical if I was going to go into ministry. So that's what I did. I picked econ. Uh, I got my econ degree, graduated, and then went to be a youth minister outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I spent one year in youth ministry, and it is what I like to call the worst year of my life. Um, and a year later, I uh, matriculated from the ministry, decided if I was going to work as much as I was working, I was at least going to get paid. So I went to law school. Um, with the thought that I, I would, you know, at least have a job where I could work a lot and get paid for doing it uh, instead of working a lot and not getting paid for doing it. So that's what led me to law school. It jived with me. Um, one thing led to another. I graduated and joined a law firm in the state and practiced for 12 years. And what was your area of specialty? Um, I did a lot of civil litigation, um, mostly in real estate, banking, uh, kind of in those sectors. So, so I came out in 2004, right when the economy was sort of high flying and, and, uh, we were booming up here in Northwest Arkansas. A lot of building was happening. And, um, so I, I did a lot of the litigation, a lot of the underlying documentation of that boom. And then obviously when the crash happened, uh, from about 2008 to 2013 or 14, we, um, just churned out documents and dealt with the fallout of the crash. So if I can just point out an irony. So you, you left youth ministry because of high work and no money to go into law with high work and lots of money. And now you've become a writer, which would probably be high work and <laughs> you may have, you may have made a full two. circle. So it's somewhere <laughs> between the two, right? Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, and part of this is part of my journey. I think there comes a point in your life when you realize um, the thing that, for me, the thing that drew me to law was the fact that I would get to write more. You know, I get to uh, work on legal briefs. I get to make arguments to the court. Um, and as I reflected on that, and as I walked into my season of sobriety, which I'm sure we'll talk about, I just looked around and said, you know, life is is really too short. Um, to take on all this stress and all this pressure um, when the thing I love to do is write. So why don't I figure out how to go write? Yeah. Yeah. The, the ability to clarify what matters most is so powerful. Yeah. And not only to clarify it, but to actually take action steps towards it. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's part of what I see in, in people that I, I, th- I look up to as really wise guides is they have that ability to, they pinpoint what matters, the short list of things that actually matter. And then they actually take action steps towards it. They don't just say, well, that's most important to me. And then, you know, feign it or, you know, believe that but never do anything with it. So with that in mind, um, I ask everybody the same question when we start the, the conversations we have. If you were going to start to define, based from your out of your own experience, if you were going to start a definition of wisdom, uh, where would you begin? Where is the beginning point for you? Yeah, I think um, I think the statement that you just made before asking that question is is important. When you identify wise people, um, you you identify people who know sort of what they want or or what they're about or, or where they're headed. And I think for me, the the predicate Kating, uh, question to what's important to me is who am I? 
And so I think for me, the beginning of wisdom is actually, is actually just taking the time to stop and ask, uh, who am I? And giving yourself an honest response, getting to know yourself. Um, who are you? What are you about? To me, that's the beginning uh, of wisdom. What are my fears? What are my aspirations? What are my dreams? What's important to me? Um, yeah, and I think if, if more of us would stop to do that, we might, we might begin to find uh, the, the first little thread of wisdom. Yeah. With that in mind, so the, the biggest part of your story, in, in 2015, you wrote a book called Coming Clean. And the very first paragraph of that book, I just want to share this with people. This is, this is, this is such good writing. This is the truest way I know to begin this exposition of Coming Clean. And though it's still difficult to accept the moniker alcoholic, I know that I am, in the most colloquial sense, dependent. Yes, I am enjoyable. I am an enjoyable, joyous, exuberant dependent. Uh, When you say finding wisdom is about discerning who you are, uh, this book is is about that. And so when you talk about dependency, how, how does that idea of dependency shape you right now is, you know, where you are, you're on the other side of sobriety and I will, you know, I'll give away the spoiler to the book. You do continue your sobriety. Mm -hmm. Um, how does that dependency idea still sit with you today? Yeah, I opened the book in a very particular way saying that I don't like the moniker alcoholic. And, and as I walk even through the 90 days in that book, you'll see, I I have a a deep hesitancy, even in that 90 days of using the term alcoholic. In fact, I still have great hesitancy using the term alcoholic, um, for a whole host of reasons. But the primary reason is instead of accepting monikers of, of identity, I am this ism or that ism or this ick or that ick. Um, I think it's, I think it's important to recognize that we're all dependent on something. We all have needs. We all have dependencies. Um, And the reason I say this has been sort of the controlling thought of my life, um, particularly since writing Coming Clean, is that, um, you know, as I've examined my own life and asked who I am, I know that I know that I know that I have dependencies, I know that I have pain in my life and I need things to ease that pain. I know I have fears in my life and I'm dependent on things to ease those fears. I operate out of constant scarcity and I'm dependent on money to ease that scarcity, right? So there are a number of things in my life that I'm dependent on. And as I studied, um, as I have studied the church fathers, as I've studied uh, the catechetical works of different faiths over the years, as I've studied uh, St. Ignatius, what I found is like, we were made to be dependent people. And the question isn't, am I or am I not dependent? The question is, what are the orders of my dependencies? So for me, um, I'm dependent on many things, but what I'd like to say is that my dependencies now are ordered. So I'm first dependent on God. I'm a joyous dependent on God now, I hope. You know, I hope that every day I wake up and I say, God, order my dependency so that it's first you and every other dependency, every other affection is ordered under that. Um, So I guess kind of a long question to your answer, but 
the idea of dependency, I, you know, I hope that I don't ever shake that question. What am I dependent on today? How am I dependent today? Um, I hope that I don't ever pretend that I'm not because I think I always will be. And I think we all always are. With that question and with your answer, looking at things like identity and dependency, there's a great deal of self-reflection you have to be able to do. And some people don't do. So when I talk with folks, what I notice is there's there's two categories. There are folks who don't do self-reflection at all and just prefer to kind of live out of whatever comes out. Um, and then there are folks who do self-reflection but only do it to a certain extent. Um, how do you, how did you, in the process of recovery, maintain a balance of not getting completely lost in kind of navel-gazing, but at the same time coming to a healthy understanding of this is who I am, this is my dependency, and this is where God is rescuing me? How did you stay in a healthy balance between self-awareness and being completely caught up in, in self-introspection in introspection and, and self-examination. <laughs> um, that's a big assumption that I didn't get caught up in, <laughs> in unhealthy self-reflection. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think there are a couple things to that one. Um, I know what you mean by navel gazing. I am the type of per- person that doesn't necessarily think that navel gazing is negative. Uh, uh, so long as there's some sort of action or movement that comes out of it. Um, Wait, are you, are you an Enneagram four? I have to ask five. You're five. Okay. So so I'm a four, I'm a four with a five wing. So as soon as you said that, I was like, that's my brother right there. That's exactly the same neighborhood. That's right. I'm a five with a four wing. Um, and so for me, you know, this is kind of a joke if you're an Enneagram person, but it's so true for me, for me, there's that, you know, there's that gap at the bottom of the Enneagram between the five and the four, that, that little hole that doesn't connect and that existential hole, for me, it's real, right? So I constantly collect data. I've always been introspective. I've always looked at my past, my present, my future, and tried to like make things make sense. And it's always been a real struggle to make things make sense, right? Um, so, so for me, in my season of uh, dependency on alcohol, um, what I, I knew sort of at a base level was that this was related to something else. This was relating to an underlying pain. I felt the pain. Um, it was an existential pain and I knew that I had to get to the bottom of that pain if I was going to fix, um, this dependency on alcohol. I knew it for two reasons. One, I just innately knew it, but two, uh, my therapist that I went to has, you know, done this for, you know, over a decade, um, said, you know, look, every time I deal with any sort of dependency, there's an underlying pain point, and we have to do the work to get to that pain point, and that's going to take self-reflection. So if you don't want to do that self-reflection, you can join a program, and you can work some steps, and you can do some things, and you can white-knuckle it. But if you actually want freedom from the dependency, or you actually want to be able to like walk into something that's new and whole, then you're going to have to do that work. And I did that work. And um, that work uh, was done with a skilled therapist, with my wife, with my community. Um, And because of that, I think they were able to kind of keep me present uh, to the moment, present to myself, present to them, and not like sort of fall into that, that hole of just constant, uh, like you said, navel gazing. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you, anybody's listening, they don't know what the Enneagram is. I'm going to put some notes in there where they can go do some more reading, but that's been really helpful. And it is super helpful in, in the question of identity. Like it, the Enneagram doesn't determine who we are, but man, it gives you some signposts to understand where stuff is coming from and why certain things happen the way they do. And I have to chuckle, like only a four and a five would look at that gap between the two and go, that's a mysterious gap. You know, like (laughs) eights, eights, eights would be like, let's fix that. Let's fix it now. There shouldn't be a gap there. Let's fill it in with a crayon. Yeah. Uh, So in, so with that in mind, you know, you're doing this deep work and I agree with you, like there's a certain amount of self-reflection, even navel gazing that's helpful. And yet you're also doing it in the midst of a, of a recovery process. And so the book covers the 90, 90 days, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right. And in like day eight or nine, you talk about sobriety as being this burning feeling. So how do you, how do you have this sense, this deep sense of identity and self and at the same time start experiencing what is not a neat and tidy process? Um, I, there's another writer named Heather Kopp who her book, Sober Mercies, I read a bit of that. And she talks about how there's a, there's, it's like when you're, when you come home and you decide to give up, you go to rehab, you come home, you give up drinking there's like a black line and you stand with your back to it and you know, you can never go back, but you have no idea what it looks like to go forward. So for you doing this deep, deep work with these people around you, how did, how did you do that? Well, given the fact that this was going to be a meandering sort of, you know, messy, not tidy kind of process. Yeah, man, that's a great, that's a great question. And normally when an interviewee says that's a great question, um, that the, what they're doing is stalling and that's exactly what I'm doing right now is, is stalling. Um, how did you, I uh, love the honesty. How did you, uh, Hey, look, I'm an Enneagram five. I'm nothing if not honest. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, how did you do that? Well, I mean, that, that, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure when anyone walks into sobriety, anyone who's honest, I'm not sure when anyone who's honest walks into sobriety that they know they're going to do it well, that they know they ultimately want to do it well, um, or that they even give uh, a crap about doing it well. I mean, it is literally that moment where, like you, know, like you said about Heather, your, your, your back is against the line or the wall. There is no path for, but forward. You have to walk forward. Um, but by the same token, at any given point, you're sort of tempted to turn around and walk back to the line and bust through the wall and go back to the other side. So um, I, I don't know that I would have told you from the very beginning that I wanted to be uh, sober long-term, that I wanted to really order my dependencies long-term. I don't know that I could have told you that I wanted to do it well necessarily um, or that I thought it would uh, work for me. So, um, and in fact, in fact, as you read the 90 day uh, exposition of my sobriety, you might get the sense that I set out to do it well and did do it well. But one month after, or one year year after my uh, first day of sobriety, I was in Colorado with two friends, uh, John uh, Blaze and Wynn Collier. And, um, 
and I, we were leaving, I was actually leaving on the anniversary date of my sobriety. And I had an 18 hour trip back home and, or, or 13 hours, something I can't remember. But I, I told them, I'm like, look, y'all, I'm ready to burn it all down because I've now been a year. Uh, there's no other milestone after this year. I feel like I've done this last year. Well, but like, what is next forever? Does this, you know, what's, what comes next? Um, I knew I had some more internal work to do. I didn't want to do it because it was too painful. Um, I knew that my community was growing weary of doing it. I just told them, look, I, I'm thinking about burning it all down and stopping and getting a pint of whiskey on the way home, you know. And, and um, both of those guys uh, kind of talked me off the ledge. And, and Lynn just said, man, you got to stop living from this identity that you have a drinking problem. And you need to embrace the fact that you've essentially walked away from the wall. You've walked forward you've made this many steps, just keep walking. Um, so again, I mean, you know, to, to, to take your question and to morph it into something that I want to answer. Uh, that's, Fair enough. That's, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. If you are, Yeah, that's, I think that's what I would say is that I, you know, I don't know that I knew I was going to do it. Well, I don't know that anyone knows that they're going to do it well. Um, and all you can just kind of do is just like keep walking and see what happens. When you do that walk, so you do 90 days, you go, you get to the year point, you have this moment with Wynn and John. Uh, how does, how does sobriety age? So it sounds like you start, you begin the process with this acute sense of, I need to do something. I'm not sure how committed I am to it, but I just know this needs to happen. You get to a year, you have that feeling of, well, there's no more achievements to, to have, we're sitting now a couple years, two, three years from the book. Um, how does sobriety age for you? How has it changed from when you wrote this to where you sit right now? Yeah. Sobriety, my friend, ages like a fine wine. It grows more supple over time. How ironic. The tannins wane. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I, I say that it is a joke, but it's really kind of not. Um, I, I don't, so the thing about the thing, how, you know, you have a drinking problem is literally like everything. Like I love beer. I love gin. I love whiskey. I adore wine. Uh, I love scotch, um, peppermint schnapps. Why not? I like it all, man. And so this is these are some of the reasons you know. So uh, that you have a drinking problem, and and I drank wine for a really long time, and I really loved aged wine. And the reason I loved aged wine is just that the mellowness, like how older red wines just really mellow out and become something completely different. Sometimes something velvety, uh, something a little bit more laid back. You know, something a little less punch you in the face. Um, and if I can uh, be a little bit of cra- a little bit crass in my metaphor, I mean, I think that's a little bit how sobriety ages, you know, there's this sense in the early days that I've got to punch this in the face and bring all my energy to it and do all the things that I can do with it. And, um, I'm not even going to let it breathe. I'm just going to like ramrod through, you know, and, um, but there's this sense that you, you come to know, like if you're going to maintain, a real sobriety, which I'll get to in a moment. If you're going to maintain a real sobriety, um, you have to mellow out a little bit. You have to stop and say, like, what is sobriety? What does it mean? 
does it mean to drink or not to drink? Because if that's the question, then every day I got to be on. Every day I got to bring, you know, all my energy. I have to be completely amped up about sobriety. I have to talk about it to everyone around me all the time and wear people out with it and these things. And that's why I say, like, there was a point in my own sobriety where I said, like, that can't be the question because I don't have the energy for that. I don't have the energy for this kind of, like, work to not drink, to drink or not drink, to constantly run that uh, calculus in my head. So um, that's when I pushed more into this idea of ordering attachments and ordering dependencies and really mellowing out and coming before God and saying, like, God, the question can't be to drink or not to drink. Instead, the question needs to be, am I connected with you? Am I connected with what I'm feeling? Am I inviting you into what I'm feeling? If I have pain, do I invite you into that pain? Do we talk through that pain and colloquy together? Or do I run off to something else to try to numb the pain, right? So, um, are my dependencies in order? Am I dependent first on God to deal with pain and desire and longing and then on everything else underneath it? And, and that question is a lot easier to answer than am I going to be sober a month from now? Am I going to have the energy to not drink a month from now? Um, the daily process of the walk with God is a lot easier to, to, to answer. And so sobriety hopefully ages and matures into something that looks more like Am I ordering my dependency on God and less like, do I have the energy to not drink today? Yeah. So as sobriety ages, you, you have to push through to the point where you understand the life around it, the life around drinking more than drinking or not drinking. That's powerful. Yeah, man. I mean, so there's an article, I think it was in the times and it's a fascinating article, but it it talks about heroin abuse and heroin users. And, and, um, there's a, a a particular uh, set of people within heroin uh, addiction circles who they'll go to NA, they'll get free. Uh, they'll be off narcotics for, you know, years and years and years. And they'll, you know, go from like 160 pounds soaking wet to like 310 you know, seemingly overnight. Um, And there are some physiological reasons for that, which are, you know, some of the uh, sugar fix that that heroin gives you as it breaks down in the body and the need for the body to replace that sugar fix. But but at the end of the day, what the article sort of indicates um, is that there are substitutionary addictions. So while you can get rid of your heroin addiction, if you just then displace or or replace that addiction with something else um you haven't actually done the work that it takes to be free yeah so i think aa calls that switching bartenders or something like that yeah absolutely absolutely so so if i um were to tell you that all my energy is brought to the table to like make sure that i don't drink today because i know that drinking is a destructive habit but then I'm, you know, spending, uh, you know, three hours in the evening when I'm stressed out looking at porn or binging on Netflix or uh, shopping on Amazon or, you know, what, pick your poison playing video games, whatever the thing is. Um, then the question has to be like, am I really sober? And that's why I think the question of ordered dependencies makes a whole lot more sense um, particularly when you're asking like, am I really sober? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So somebody, there's, you can dive into, and I'm sure I grew up in Southern West Virginia. So the South has its own thing, especially when it comes to Christian faith. What's the conversation like for you when you encounter people who will say, I read your book and that's exactly why I'm totally against alcohol. No one should ever drink ever. It's the devil's elixir. How how do you respond to something, to a conversation like that, which, well, how do you respond to something like that? I'd be curious. I just ask him to see their browser history. (laughs) Right. Funny. Ironically funny. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, um, I haven't actually run into that too much. The couple times that I have, um, it's been sort of uh, sort of an undercurrent statement. It hasn't been like the thing that's led the conversation. It's been more like, yeah, well, this is why, you know, like you said, like, this is really why I choose not to drink because I don't want to numb, yada, yada. But um, I can think of two times that happened. And as it happened, um we began to talk through other situations in their lives, other places where they found dependencies. And what we got to in both cases was the same thing, which is you still have an underlying core pain that you haven't dealt with, and you're still using something else to numb that pain. So you can say all day long, I don't have an addiction or a drinking problem, or this is why I don't drink. Um, But I can't tell you the number of people that I've run into who have said, Oh yeah, my credit card problem is just like your drinking problem or, uh, you know, any of the other, the issues that I talk about in the book is just like your drinking problem. So, um, I think if somebody were to say that to me as sort of forthright as you did, you know, and like wore their Southern swagger, uh, while they said it, I, I do, I do genuinely think my response would be show me your browser history. Yeah, right. And hoping that it would lead into a broader conversation about like, what is addiction? Is it really alcohol? No, it, it's a lot deeper than that. Yeah. So um, why is it, do you think that we, because now that you, when you write a book like this and, and you may have anticipated it, you may have not, suddenly you have this platform, you are brought into these conversations now about addiction and sobriety. And why is it that we really only use the word sobriety for things like alcohol and narcotics and maybe uh, prescription drugs? We, we only use it related to those things. We don't necessarily use it in relationship to food or consumer practices or anything else that you talk about that may be a coping mechanism or a numbing thing. Why don't we use sobriety in that same way? I mean, lack of imagination, Um, I I think what's interesting is that when you look at the scriptures, uh, certain translations in the scriptures actually like give us imagination for applying, applying sobriety of mind to a much broader context. And, and that context being, uh, being aware of what's going on around us, like being awake. Uh, so the notion of sobriety, uh, throughout the scriptures as translated is this, this idea that we're awake to the world around us, that we're awake to the work of Christ, his presence um, in the world around us, that work in the world around us, that, right? So I think probably part of it is um, a lack of imagination and lack of understanding what the scriptures actually teach as far as the Christian perspective goes um, about sobriety. Um, But I think part of it too is just, you know, so long as we can categorize people, so long as we can box people up, we insulate ourselves, 
Right. And, and, and this is a particularly uh, poignant point in light of today's uh, circumstance, the, the world, the sociology around us in the world today. If, if somebody can say, oh, yeah, Seth had to get sober and it relates to, you know, heroin or alcohol, then um, that kind of keeps me in a different category. And so they don't necessarily have to deal with their spending problem or their binging and purging problem. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I, I think you, you even see that. I mean, look, you even see that today in, in modern politics. I'm on this side. They're on that side. If I'm on this side, I don't really have to talk to them. I don't have to uh, uh, confront myself in the other person. Um, and I think it's a lot of that, just like not wanting to confront the self uh, that you might see in my addiction, which was alcohol. But guess what? It's also been other things, right? So um, I think that's probably a lot of it. So in that case, civility, civility is a kind of sobriety. Yeah, civility. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is the one of the biggest struggles that I'm having right now in the online space is it. I go to the online space. I see things that get me uh, riled up, angry. Um, <laughs> there are probably other words I would use were we not on the air. Um, but I see these things that get me riled up and angry and make me want to respond uh, in a tirade. Uh, sometimes to people I know and love, oftentimes just to the air or just to an avatar. Um, and and they they as they spool me up and as they uh, push my action uh, forward and as I type out the vitriolic, terrible thing on Facebook or Twitter or the response um, or whatever it is, I mean, for that moment, in that moment, um, in that moment of incivility, I've lost sight of the presence of Christ in me, in the other, in the world around me, and I've forgotten to tend to and to be awake um, to the presence of Christ and the other. And so by my definition, that is a very insober act. I mean, that, that's a, if you're drunk on something, it may not be alcohol, but you're drunk on this need to be right. This need to be the winner, this need to have the power, whatever it is, you know? So, uh, again, yeah, I think anything that like kind of dims your eyes, um, to what's going on in the world around you and to the presence of Christ and the other across the table from you is, is by its very nature an act of drunkenness. Man. So I'd love to just start a whole new episode right here and just talk about <laughs> that. <laughs> that would be fantastic. That's such, a good, uh, that's such a good way to think about it, though, because what I notice is we typically also um, – do high profile, especially now, especially within the church, when we talk about moral failures, um, I always heard Dallas Willard talk about this. And he said, when you hear moral failure, you never hear, oh, he was too, uh, there was too much ego or pride. It's always sex or money or, you know, it was always sex or money, actually, mm -hmm. or maybe, maybe some sort of alcohol or, or uh, narcotics. But most of the time it's sex and money. And how greed can be just as addictive as heroin, how approval can be just as addictive as anything else. That's super powerful. So, so somebody reads the book, let's say somebody's listening to the podcast right now and they are, uh, they're wrestling with addiction of some kind, or maybe now they realize 
what they thought was just an, an issue or a thing is actually probably bigger and they're becoming aware of that. If you had a chance to have a conversation with them, having gone through this 90 days and now these years since, how do you have that conversation with them about recovery and just passing on some of the wisdom you've gained? Yeah, so actually I speak on this a good bit um, and I run into people a good bit who um, who may not even be willing to admit yet that they have a problem, but maybe ask the question, do I have a problem? I mean, that's oftentimes where these conversations start. And, um, and first of all, I mean, I tell people all the time, like step one, find a therapist. Okay, I'm glad you're having this conversation with me. And if you're in my community, we can continue to have the conversation. If you're just a random person online, or if you're a friend of a friend, or if you're someone who heard me speak at the local church, you know, we're not going to be in ongoing dialogue. dialogue. So one, find a therapist, find a community of support, find something. Um, but then the conversation that I always have, the conversation that I always want to get to the bottom of is when did this start and what was the pain that you felt when it started? Okay, so here's an example. I have a friend who has a significant shopping addiction and she will call it a shopping addiction. She uh, will buy five, six, seven hundred dollars worth of stuff on Amazon, and then we'll turn around and send it all back. She'll spend three hours binging, click, 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 and then after that end of that three hours, she'll purge her cart because she knows she doesn't have enough uh, money to buy this thing. And as we were talking through this, I said, you know, when when did this start? And uh, her very candid answer was, I never remember a time where I wasn't motivated to try uh, to solve something by shopping. You know, whether it was six years old at the candy store or whether it's now as an adult on Amazon, I can never remember a time when I wasn't trying to fix some problem with shopping. What was that problem? Well, I don't know. And then we talk and we talk and we talk. And the pain is I grew up in a home that didn't have any money. And my parents used to talk all the time about we don't have enough. We don't have enough money. Are we going to make it to tomorrow? Are we going to make it to next month? Are we still going to have our house? And she said, you know, if I could buy something, then I knew that there was disposable income and that in that moment I had enough. Uh, it, it, it was the pacifier. It was the thing to comfort me to say, no, no, it's okay. You have enough. And so from the age of six or seven years old to her adult life, this uh, exercise sort of worked itself out into this insidious addiction, this way of numbing her pain. And it wasn't until she was in her 30s that she stopped and turned back and looked and said, oh, there is a deep pain here. So whenever I have this conversation with anybody, I don't start at, well, go do the 12 steps. You know, I mean, there are people who do, and that's good. I'm not saying there's anything negative about that. But what I want to start with is what is your pain? And there are a couple reasons for that. One, I think all addiction is fueled by pain. But two, there have been a couple occasions now, uh, since I've been doing this now for several years, there have been a couple of occasions where I've run across an emergency level, I have this addiction, I don't know why. And as we get back to the pain, I mean, you're talking about something so dark and so insidious and so secret 
that it was literally like the person is literally at the end of their rope. So um, one of the things that, that I would say to your readers even, or your listeners even is, is as any of us have these conversations about, I might have a problem. I might not be sober is that we actually start first and identify like, what is the pain? Is there a pain point? And is it the kind of exigent pain that says we need to seek help together like now? Cause I've, I've run into that. Um, so yeah. So, so what is the pain? That's where we start the conversation. And then I just let it take shape from there. Yeah. Yeah. Man, thank you for being on today. Thanks for the conversation. I know this is going to be super helpful. And I'm going to give people links to your book. And uh, were you surprised? I mean, your your book was the the number one spiritual formation resource in uh, Christianity Today's 2016 Book of the Year uh, nominations and, and winners. Was that surprising to you? Uh, yeah, it was actually really surprising to me for a couple of reasons. One, um, I, the one publisher turned it down because they said I was a relapse risk. Um, I know that for a fact. And then like 11 other publishers turned it down uh, just because they did. And I'm sure it was because I was a relapse risk. Uh, oh. So I, I kind of felt like um, that the book would fly away in, under the radar. Um, but two, I just thought like a book on sobriety as a spiritual formation resource, like are people really going to buy that? Um, are they going to, are they going to discount it as a sobriety book and, mm. and not by the argument that we're all drunk on something, we're all addicted to something. Um, but I will say, uh, this, uh, the good people at Zonervan who published my book and my editor, uh, Stephanie Smith, like, and Carolyn McCray from the very beginning, they like saw that this was a book that was about more than just drinking or not drinking, that it was about something that looked like, um, finding the abiding presence of God, even in the middle of this pain. Um, and they promoted that message and they worked hard for that message. And I, I cannot be, uh, grateful enough. I'll never be grateful enough, uh, for all the work that they put in to, to sort of get that message to market and to make sure that the right people heard it. Yeah. Well, man, thank you. Thanks for sharing your time with us. It's been a great conversation. Uh, and I know there are some people who th- they needed to hear this today. So, so thanks for being on. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's good to have a great story and have a great sense of humor and uh, be able to to span the gulf of topics like Seth did in that interview. I hope that was helpful for you guys. I'm going to put the links to Seth's book that you can pick up, uh, which I would highly recommend. Also, we talked a little bit about something called the Enneagram. I'm hoping to have a guest on uh, at some point to talk about that. I'm going to put a link to a book called uh, The Road Back to You that I think is a helpful introduction to the Enneagram. Uh, And also, uh, I alluded to a book by an author named Heather Kopp called Sober Mercies. I'm going to put a link for that as well. But uh, thank you guys for listening. If you subscribe and uh, get this on your podcast, uh, whether it's iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get podcasts, thank you for being a subscriber. If you're listening on the website and streaming it, that's great. Uh, I would consider subscribing if I were you. It's just a little bit easier. can get on your device. Uh, a little easier. But if you do, again, if you do subscribe and you haven't reviewed or rated the podcast, we'd really love to see that. That's helpful for me to know uh, what's really happening out there. Uh, And so uh, I've got another episode coming up here in the next couple weeks. I am going to be 
I'm going to be off. I'm going to be out and doing a few things that I'll talk about later. But uh, if you do happen to see a gap in the episodes, that's what's happening. Uh, But until then, my friends, be well, live wisely.